continue our story of the life as we are in the life of David at this moment. Today we start our series entitled Friend, Enemy, and Adversary. In every relationship, every relationship, there is a minimum of three forces. You can take two people, they can be two friends, they can be two enemies, they can be two married people, and sometimes it's all of the above on that, isn't it? Thank you. But there's always a third force, a third negative force inside every relationship. Now, sometimes a relationship can have a negative force that's a person. A young girl comes home from a date looking rather sad and starts crying. Her mother asks her what's wrong. With tears in her eyes, she says, Bill proposed to me an hour ago. Well, her mother says, well, why are you so sad? That's wonderful news. The girl replies, because he also told me he was an atheist. Mom, he doesn't even believe there's a hell. Her mother got a big smile on her eye and says, oh, don't worry, sweetheart. Marry him anyways. Between the two of us, we'll show him how wrong he is. Sometimes there can be a negative force that can be a person. Sometimes there's a negative force in a relationship that can, sometimes it can be your own stupidity. Gentlemen, since it's the beginning of the new year, I thought we'd start off, give you a little public service announcement. This is an old video. It's one of my favorites by a Christian comedian by the name of Tim Hawkins. This is good advice to start the year off for every Christian married man. Let's play this little clip. the choreography myself. Hey honey, have you gained some weight in your rear end? The dress you wear reminds me of my old girlfriend. And where'd you get those shoes? I think they're pretty lame. Would you stop talking cause I'm trying to watch the game? If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life, these are the things you don't say to your wife. I planned a hunting trip next week on your birthday. I didn't ask you, but I knew it'd be okay. Go make some dinner while I watch this fishing show. I taped it over our old wedding video. If you're a man who done that, a long and happy life is all the things you do to live. Solo, okay. Your cooking is okay, but not like mother makes. The diamond in the ring I bought you is a fake. Your eyes look puffy, dear. Are you feeling ill? Happy anniversary, I bought you a treadmill. <laughs> You're a man who wants to live long and happy love that too. These are the things you don't say to me. You're a man who doesn't want to get killed with a knife. These are the things you don't say to me. service announcement. Just to remind you, gentlemen, sometimes the negative force in your marriage is your own stupidity. But let's be honest, there is a negative force in every relationship. Let me be biblically correct, that negative force is our adversary. That our adversary, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. You see, the Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
If there are an unsaved people, well, there's a negative force at Satan. But if you're here today and you're two believers and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you've been born again. There is another force inside every one of those relationships, and it's Jesus. Today, as we start our new year, as we start this series, let me give you this sort of friend thought, and it's this. Every relationship needs a binding force. Every relationship needs a binding force. Some relationships, the binding force is getting high. Just go to the next one. Some relationship, the binding force is getting high. Some relationship in many marriages, the binding force is raising kids. And then once that job is taken care of and the kids are raised, there's no longer the binding force. And we call them empty nesters. And they are the largest group of divorced people in our country today because their entire relationship was bound around one simple fact. We must raise these children. And now the children are raised and now they have nothing to keep them together. I'd like to suggest to you in a friendship and maybe even for some of you, even a little bit more practical advice, a marriage advice. The greatest binding force is Jesus. Amen. This is my savior commercial. Just to start the new year, you need a relationship with God that can only be achieved by accepting Christ as your personal savior. Jesus said there's two options in eternity, eternity with him and eternity without him. And Jesus used the word to describe the place of eternity with him as heaven. And he used the word to describe the place of eternity without him. He used the word hell. You see, this relationship, this binding force inside of your, this is what's missing inside your marriage today. This binding force, this is what's missing inside your home. This is what's missing inside your life. And in 1 Samuel 18, we're going to see that this chapter is all about friendship. It's all about enemies and it's all about adversaries. There's going to be some great marriage advice in this chapter, and today we'll cut up, cover some of that. And it's some great advice about how to be a better friend. But ultimately, like everything we do in this church, ultimately it is a statement for our need for Jesus. David is about to meet his greatest friend. And that man's name? Jonathan. And Jonathan is a type of Christ. So if you're taking notes today, We're going to give you three things as we go through 1 Samuel 18. A godly friend, number one, a godly friend will connect with you. A godly friend will connect with you. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 18. And it came to pass, and by the way, it always comes to pass, when he made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What does that mean? Knit with the soul of David. You need to imagine a seamstress sewing two pieces of material together to make one piece of material. Your clothing, probably it's a pretty good chance that the clothing you're wearing today is not one piece, but it's yet one or two or three multiple pieces that have been sewn together. David and Jonathan had been bound together, knit together like a seamstress. You see, what binds most people? Well, similar experiences bind most people. You see war veterans, and they have different stories, and one war veteran will kind of recognize another war veteran and stuff, and we have a similar experience. It binds you instantaneously together. Sometimes similar love can bind somebody together. 
my father and I had a similar love with football and sports. And, you know, it's, I've carried that on with my son. And I, I really didn't really want to watch the NFL this year. I had a lot of issues and stuff. But quite frankly, it's when the Steelers score, it's the only time I get to hug my 18-year-old son. 19 now. Wow, i got to get used to saying that. What binds people together, similar experiences, similar loves. What bound David and, excuse me, David and Jonathan together? Well, right there in that verse, verse 1, was their souls. You see, they didn't have a connection that was similar experiences. They didn't have a connection with, we like the same team, we love the same people. They had a spiritual connection that bound them together. Listen, inside your marriage, you need to have a spiritual connection to each other. You need to have this more than just a similar experience, more than just a similar mutual physical attraction to each other, more than, well, we have these kids that we have to raise and you keep me from killing them and then I keep you from killing them and we kind of work together as a team. There needs to be more than that. You need to have your souls knit together. And by the way, isn't that literally what the Bible said about marriage? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his own wife. And what? Just like David and Jonathan. They shall be one flesh. And by the way, the New Testament, the New Testament talks about marriage. It says this. It says something eventually. There we go. It says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be not unequally yoked. Believers are supposed to marry other believers. In fact, let me be more biblically correct. A growing believer is supposed to marry a growing believer. An unsa- or a carnal believer has more in common with the unsaved world than they do with a believer who's walking in, in, in spirit and walking with Christ. Amen? Why? Because you are yoked together. This is at 11 o'clock. I'm going to emphasize this more. We need to be careful when we see some young people and they want to get married. We don't need to encourage them because, well, we think they they have similar experiences. We don't need to encourage them because, well, we think they're in love. You know, that's all. All you need is love, right? No. Try and go down and pay your mortgage with love. Try and pay your taxes with love. Tell the federal government in a few months, oh, I'm just going to send you a big envelope full of love. So obviously you need more. We need to encourage our young people, find somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Find somebody who's actively searching for God's will in life. Find somebody who's actively walking with Jesus because marriage is hard, isn't it? Amen? There's some cowards in here. Marriage is hard, isn't it? And you need a third force working for you because Satan is trying to destroy your marriage and you need a third force. And how can you do that if you marry an unbeliever? So married couples, let me ask you this. What's keeping you from becoming one? Is it pride? One of you won't submit to the other. One of you won't bend. One of you won't admit they were wrong. Is it an issue that took place? Ladies, I love you. I love you. But no one can remember something that a husband does wrong better than his wife. And sometimes you hold it for 20, 30 years just waiting back in a filing cabinet in your mind. And then when it's, oh, yeah, well, do you remember June 13th, 1974? You did this! 
And I have the proof right here. And I've been saving it. No. Hmm. What's keeping us from coming together? Maybe it's selfishness. I want, I want, I want, I want. Sometimes when you're arguing, watch how many times you're talking about I want, I want, I want, what I need, what I feel, what I think. Watch how many arguments use those phrases. In fact, I'll dare say almost all of them. Maybe it's an unconfessed sin. Sir, the reason you and your wife seem like there's a distance and I say your souls knit together, you're like, no, we've kind of turned into more roommates. I don't know if we're really like that connection, maybe because between you and your wife is an unconfessed sin that you need to take care of and you need to repent of. Amen? Does God know what we're going through? Yeah. How does God give, why does God give David a friend like Jonathan? Look at verse 2. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. No more would the word home be part of David's vocabulary. No more would that haven of rest home be part of his life. And it wasn't just his home. Do you notice whose home it was? It was his father's house. I like to point that out very often to my children. You're living in my home. This is my money. You're eating my food. If you don't like the rules, you can leave and find your own home. And by the way, your cell phone stays here too. Let me just tell you something. You're not an adult until you pay for your own cell phone bill. But David is a young man, and he's all alone in the world. There's a great lesson that takes place here. It takes place for David. It's not up there. We're having a little technical problems today, so don't worry about it. A great lesson is this if you're taking notes. God knows what you're going through today. God knows what you're going through today. You see, I don't know who you are. I don't know all the facts of your life. I don't know what you're going on but God knows today. See, when life is hard and when my heart is breaking, that's when my friend Jesus walks in. You're here today and it may not be a marriage issue. It may be a health issue. It may be even a financial issue that you're struggling with. It may be a relationship that involves one of your kids and you're so concerned about how they're behaving and what's going on in their life. I want to tell you something. God knows what's happening, and he cares for you. Amen? Number two, a godly friend will covenant with you. A godly friend will covenant with you. Look at verse three. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. In church, and I have grown up in church my entire life, we make a push for decisions in Christianity. Now, I'm not saying decisions are wrong. Today, you need to make a decision whether you're going to serve God or not. Today, you need to make a decision whether you're going to serve your sin or whether you're going to repent. Today, you need to make a decision. You're either going to accept Christ as your personal Savior, or once again, you're going to say no and walk out unbelieving, unredeemed. But we make this push for decisions. And that's kind of what we do at our altar call. And at the end of our service, like we do every time, we'll make a, an altar call. And altar calls are a little odd sometimes if you think about them. It's an interesting situation because sometimes as a preacher, we think we've been successful in preaching if we have a big altar call. And if people come forward and cry, that seems to be, oh, that was a good message and a good service. There are people crying. Look what I did. I've learned as a married man, I don't need to preach to make people cry, but... I would like to suggest something to today. 
instead of making the decision the start of this new year, instead of making the decision, I would like to challenge you to do something different and make a covenant with God. A covenant. You say, well, that's the same, a decision or a covenant. Do we have this? There's a difference between a decision and a covenant. A decision is something you do if you're taking notes. A decision is all about you. I've made this decision, and this is what I'm going to do. I made a New Year's resolution, and I'm going to stop. A decision is all about you and your acting. A decision will rise and fall on what you do and how you behave and if you keep it. But a covenant, a covenant is a decision involving two people. Do you see the difference? A decision is all about you, but a covenant now is a decision that involves two people. Today, make a covenant that involves God in your life. Meaning, you have obligations, but so does God. I'll give you an example. You want to break a bad habit. Okay, this is what you do. You make a decision that you will no longer go to the store and buy that. You make a decision that you'll have an internet safeguard in your home. You'll make a decision that you will no longer meet or see that person. I've got this habit, and every time I'm around this person, I get involved in doing it. You make a decision to do that, and that's where most of us leave it, and that's how we've been taught. You need to stop acting bad and start acting right, right? And that is a decision, and what usually happens, well... Usually we go back on it. How many of you have kept your New Year's resolution from 1981, right? Usually some of you should be in much better shape if you did. Usually we go back on those decisions, but a covenant is this. God, I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to stop this, but you're going to give me the ability not to crave it anymore. God, I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to put up some safeguards in my life to keep me from going this direction again but you are going to help bring conviction in my life so that the next time I decide I'm going to do this and it's going to be very dangerous, it could destroy my home, the next time I decide to do that, Lord, you're going to step in and you're going to give me a flat tire. See, no longer is this just me making a determination which is based on me and my ability, my my, uh, self-will and my determination to do things or not to do things. Now with the covenant, I've involved God and he has a part in this equation. Amen. Gentlemen, you want to make a covenant with God? Make a covenant with God and say, Lord, if I ever step outside of my bounds of my marriage before I do that, you break me as far as you need to. You give me a heart attack. You give me an illness. God, if before I ever do that, I would rather die than be involved in that sin and be involved in that issue. You see, now instead of it just me making a promise, me making a decision, now I've involved God involved in this decision-making process. See, isn't that what marriage is supposed to be? It's supposed to be a covenant between two people. I promise, I promise, you'll do, I'll do. See, this is revolutionary. You don't need a New Year's resolution. You need a God infusion. Involving God in your life decisions, you can't go wrong. A young boy was waiting after church for his family. The pastor saw him standing around and struck up a conversation. Noticing the boy had just come home from, come from Sunday school, the pastor thought he would ask him a question to see what he was learning. He said, young man, if you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you a shiny, a big shiny apple. Thoughtfully, the boy replied, sir, 
if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole box of apples. Here's the thing about Jesus. I think I can say this biblically correct. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't come and he doesn't kick in the door in your heart. He doesn't come and he doesn't kick in the door on your home. He doesn't come. He doesn't kick in the door in your marriage and say, I will take over. I demand this happens. No, Jesus is a gentleman. He comes and he knocks. Will you accept me as your personal Savior? By the way, isn't that a covenant? You made a decision to accept Christ and you involved God in it. And Jesus said, I will promise to save you. And when the day comes when you leave, I will never leave you nor forsake you because the last thing you will see is this earth and the next thing you will see is my face. Isn't that a covenant? I want to be part of your marriage and he comes and he knocks. I want to be the Lord of your life and he comes and he knocks. I want to change your family and be the center of your family. I want to be the force inside your family. And he comes and he knocks. Will you answer today? And lastly, number three, a godly friend. Well, a godly friend will care for you. David has just killed Goliath. King Saul tells him, you're going to stay here, probably to keep an eye on him, by the way, knowing Saul. David has nothing with him, so look at verse four. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. Uh, that's his outer tunic, his outer garment. And he gave it to David, the little shepherd boy, and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow. Jonathan was an exceptional bow hunter. For some of you, this is like giving away your favorite and best deer hunting rifle. That's exactly what Jonathan is doing here. Take my best coat, take some of my best clothes here. And while, by the way, while you're at it, take my favorite deer hunting rifle. This costs a lot of money and it's really good. You're going to need it because you have nothing here. And what else? And, his, and to his, his girdle, his belt that put it all together. David is a peasant boy, but now he's going to be a public figure. Jonathan makes sure that David has everything he will need in the future. He takes care of him. Why? Because Jonathan is a picture of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 4, and when I came to that phrase and it said this, I saw a similarity between Jesus. He stripped himself of the robe. I could not help but think of Matthew 27 and 28. Jesus sat there before the cross and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe. Jesus saw our sinfulness. He saw our, it was everything the best we had was filthy rags, Isaiah said. But he stepped out of heaven and he came to earth and he died for me and he died for you. That's my Jesus. He loves, he cares, and he provides for us. There's a great theological word that's called propitiation. Propiti say, isn't that fun to say? It's hard to say and not smile when you say that. Say that with me. Propitiation. Say it again. Propitiation. And you can find that word in the King James Version that I'm using in 1 Jonathan 2.2. 2. And propitiation, he was our propitiation for sin. The literal definition of propitiation means to make someone greater happy. To appease someone who is greater than you. And that's what Jesus did. In his death, he appeased God the Father. His death and the death on the cross was ours for our sin and for us. Listen, you make a great mistake if you read the Bible like a textbook. If you read it like something that is just sort of a, a statement of fact. The Bible is not a textbook. It is a love letter to you. And if you're here and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you're reading someone else's mail. 
You were a sinner separated from God for all eternity. And God looked at you and His wrath would be poured out. But Jesus died on a cruel Roman cross. And He took off His righteousness. When we accept Him as personal Savior, He covers us in His blood. So now, no longer does God see my sin. No longer does He see my filth. No longer does He see someone who deserves hell for all eternity. When He looks and sees me, He sees the spotless, sinless blood of the Lamb. He sees Himself. He sees His Son. He sees Jesus. And He says, come, come unto me. Today, do you know Christ is your personal Savior? Because, listen, great illustration. When I think of Jesus taking off that robe. It's like a lady walking across and there's a puddle so she doesn't get wet. A gentleman would take his coat off and put it down. I would never do that. You know what I would say? Walk around the puddle, bonehead. But there was a need, an issue we had, and it's a spiritual condition. And we were separated from God. And he came and he took off his righteousness and covered us in it. Do you know Christ today? You see, that's the issue. You see, Pastor Steve, I would love to put Jesus in the center of my life. I would love to make a covenant with him. The problem is you don't know him today. He loves and he cares for you. He is our propitiation. He appeases someone greater. What type of church do we want to be? Well, we could buy a program. Did you know that? Did you know you could go online and you could buy a church kit? You can buy messages for the entire year. You can buy this. You can buy how you're going to do it. Or we could be a church that loves and cares about people. Or we could be a church that lifts up the cross. We could be a church that preaches the word and you realize that there are some things that I preach about that they tell you you shouldn't preach about and talk about anymore because you'll just make people mad and drive them away. You don't want to scare people with the truth because people are seeking something. I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says no man seeks God. The Bible says God is seeking you today. We could be all sorts of things, or we could be people who love and care about people. We could be a church focused on spreading the word. You know, in a few weeks, we'll have our yearly plan. I do this every year. It's not a big deal. Every year I do something. And we talk about the mission statement and the purpose of the church. And I phrase it differently every year. Last year was family. But I phrase it differently. Do we have this up here? But this is basically the mission of our church. The number one thing is a clear message. That clear message is not five ways to make your marriage better, even though sometimes that does happen. That clear message is not how to make how to psychologically deal with the issues and the struggles you've gone through, even though that does take place and you do get some advice periodically. That clear message is this, that you are a sinner separated from God for all of eternity. And Jesus said you must be born again. Our clear message of everything we do in this church, everything we do from doing nice, good works in our community and being involved in it, everything we do is about giving, either pointing people or getting the opportunity to point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. We took down our Christmas decorations, and the very first thing that went back went from the back of the room all the way to the center is that cross of Jesus. Not because it's a tradition, not because I like it, and it's an aesthetic choice, and it just brings the whole room together. No, not because. Because everything we do here today, everything in this ministry, everything must be about the cross of Jesus Christ. We lift him high up above everything else. The second thing that is part of our church is our goal is our children's ministry. I always get the college kids mad when I say that because I'm involving them in the children. It, it, it's alliteration. There's a C, okay? 
but it's our children's ministry. And today that ministry started on Sunday. And my brother Ken uh, kick-started our, our, our Sunday ministry. And he's beginning, he's meeting with our junior high and our high school and our college kids. And for the next few weeks, kind of give them an idea of what he wants to do. If you're here and you have a child in one of those age groups, you say, well, you know, I didn't like some things here. And it, well, would you please, would you give us at least three months? Would you give Brother Ken at least three months to try and to work with your kids? Well, you know, I'm not really sure. Wouldn't it be great if there was a place where you could spend your teenage daughter and you knew it was safe and secure? Wouldn't it be great if there was a place you could send your junior high son and you knew it would be safe? And these people would tell your son to honor and obey his father. Oh, I like that right there. And then these people would tell your daughter and your son about being pure until they get married. Oh, that sounds good. And then these people would also try to encourage them about staying away from like drugs and alcohol and all these stumbling blocks and everything. Man, that sounds really good. Where do I find a place like that? How much does that cost? It's good news. It's free. Get your kids involved in it. Get your students involved in it. Get your college-age kids involved in it. Next is compassion. I'm going to have to edit this out of the tape. Some of my brothers and sisters are. What's what's the what's the biblical word for idiot? Okay. My brother-in-law's funeral and stuff, and so we've kind of made a decision that we're going to probably adopt our little ones. And a couple of my brothers, why would you do that? You're you're just getting your kids out. And I've actually had other people, friends, believers and stuff. Why would you do that? You're 47 years old. I know I've done the math. I know I'm going to be like 68 until I get my home back and stuff. I realize that. And my wife just said, she said, I know what I wanted to say. I know what I wanted to say. She said, well, aren't we called as believers to have compassion on orphans and widows? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What happened, church? Where did we lose our way in this? When did we become an institution with a bunch of people who should be institutionalized? And we stopped being the center and the focus of compassion? You understand something. I talked with a, I'm just venting here. I talked with a pastor of a uh, United Methodist Church. And this man was amazing. At the end of the conversation, I said, you make too much sense. You should be a Baptist. And he said, I'm going to tell you the problem with United Methodists, why it's dying. Because we do things in our community. We have compassion based out of white liberal guilt. Instead of because we've had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ, we should be feeding people and helping people, not because we feel guilty, but because Jesus has changed us and we have to tell the world about it. And I thought, man, that is amazing. You should be a Baptist. Lastly, being involved in our community. Where does it start? You know, it starts in your home. Change your marriage. Change your family. Change change the way you, you parent. Then we start to love and we start to care about other people inside this body. Then you start to find a ministry where you can reach and love other people. If you need a friend today, today you need to meet Jesus. And if you say, Pastor, I've accepted Christ, but I don't feel like I have a friend. 
But maybe it's need you need to come back and start to covenant with God to deal with some of the parts of your life. You do your part. You let God do your part. I married my best friend. Not everyone thought we should get married. I called my father-in-law. He was then just the guy who was my girlfriend's dad at the time. And I said, I've decided to ask your daughter to marry me. I'd like your permission. My father-in-law said, well, there's worse, but there's better. I don't know what that meant. (laughs) He still hasn't said yes. It's been 25 years and he still never said yes. I took it for a yes. I said, good enough. But when we were getting, before we got married, her her pastor retired and a new pastor came into that church. And her pastor was going to come back and marry us at that church and everything and stuff. And so uh, the, the new pastor, who didn't last very long, uh, his wife was big into these personality tests and stuff. And so we had to do a personality test and everything. And so she wanted us to do that. And so Sandra took it real serious and started filling it out. I didn't really take it very serious. I did it real fast. I was like, who cares? I don't care what this is. I love this girl. And so we took this out and stuff. And so uh, she sent it and called it back. And like two weeks before we're about to get married, she calls up and and she is just beside herself. And this lady told my wife, she said, not only should you two not get married, you are so extreme, you shouldn't even be friends. My wife was crying and said, we shouldn't get married. She's, I said, she's an idiot. Another biblical word. We went to our pastor in town and that we were a part of and He said, well, she's an idiot. Who cares? Who cares what a test says? What does God say? She called up her pastor who had retired, the great Dr. Emil Gardner, and he said, she's an idiot. Who cares? (laughs) And we got married. And you know what? Sometimes, you know why sometimes we stay together? Just out of bitterness and spite. Just to spite that woman. Just to, you know, sometimes that's the only way you stay together. Listen, you say, oh, well, pastor, hey, I'm going to tell you something. Marriage is hard. And I married a Texan. That's even harder. I married a Texan, and I got that Texan out of Texas. That is an amazing thing to do. And I've looked at me and my wife. We have nothing in common. I'm like as white as white can be. My wife is a Mexican. Right there, there's a cross. My wife has been slowly poisoning me these years by putting spice in my food. The spiciest thing, the spiciest thing I ever ate as a kid was salt. And now she's putting all this stuff in. And finally, I'm like, I can eat all this hot stuff. I'm like, where did this happen? And she's like, ooh. I mean, we don't have same. We've had some. We've had conversations, and that's a nice way of saying arguments about some of the same. Billy, one of the biggest fights we've ever had. I love Jesus, so I'm a Steelers fan. My wife needs to repent. She's a Cowboys fan. That causes a lot of confusion in our family. We've had a lot of fights, and I've got the microphone, Billy. Don't forget. But we've had what? No, no, no. I'm, she needs to walk with Jesus. I mean, we've had a lot of fights. Honestly, on paper, we should have never gotten married. That lady might be right. There's a big thing. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're here, we never fight. How boring. Because if you fight, you get to make up. I'm going to tell you something. The thing that has bound us together, and I've told this to my kids, and I'm always emphasizing it, the thing that has bound us together is not bitterness and spite, not a similar background, not a similar experience, not just because I think she's the most beautiful woman on the planet. We were out, and we were shopping, and she's like, I forgot to put on my makeup. I'm like, you don't need makeup. You look beautiful without it and stuff. Not, that's not what binds us together. What binds us together is Jesus Christ.
You see, there's a force in our relationship trying to destroy us, but there's also a force in our relationship, and that force is Jesus Christ trying to pull us together. He is the glue, the center. He is what keeps us together, and he is the focus of our family. Today, every relationship has three people in it, three forces in it. Why don't you add Jesus to it and start by making him the Lord of your life? With every head bowed and every eye closed. I'll ask you a simple